palace of glittering delights contains spoilers for the topics discussed herein, and sometimes contains salty language. I've warned you. Stephen J. Cannell was one of the most prolific American television producers in the medium, creating or co-creating or producing 38 different shows in between 1974 and 1995. His brand of high-octane action, excellent stunt work, oddball characters, sparky dialogue and, yes, formulaic pulp was phenomenally successful with audiences in the 1980s, but rarely found favour with the critics. Born in 1941, Cannell suffered from dyslexia, a condition he felt would prevent him from following his dream of being a writer. After working with his father for a few years, Cannell set out on his own, producing scripts for a few shows before landing a regular gig on James Garner's The Rockford Files. Here, Cannell worked with Roy Huggins, a long-time television producer with Maverick and alias Smith & Jones on his resume. Huggins was invaluable on Cannell's development as a writer. Following the cancellation of the Rockford Files, Cannell set up his own production company, so as to own his own work and thus reap the profits. Loyal to his employees, Cannell tended to work with the same people, and the same names will crop up in his work time and time again, be it producers like Frank Lupo, writers like Juanita Bartlett, or actors like Jack Gink. Cannell said this was because he knew these people could deliver, but it was also financially beneficial. If a writer worked on a Cannell show, the writer owned a piece of the pie, something that wouldn't occur if they worked for a larger studio or network. But after Rockford, Cannell struggled. City of Angels, Ten Speed and Brown Shoe, and Richie Brockelman P.I. all floundered, barely lasting a season. He did have a few moderate successes, such as World War II drama Barbar Black Sheep, which ran for two seasons, and was an early gig for Donald P. Belisario. Beretta, which ran for four seasons, and his most fondly remembered early series, The Greatest American Hero, which ran for two years. In 1983, however, he hit pay dirt with the global smash hit, The A-Team. It's been said that the easiest time for a producer to get a show on the air is when they already have a successful show on the air. Thus it was with Cannell, who, following the success of The A-Team, entered the 1983 season with two new shows. The Rooters, a quickly cancelled series about a carnival bouncer turned bounty hunter, and Hardcastle and McCormick, created by Cannell and Patrick Hasberg. Hardcastle and McCormick was a typical high-concept show. Milton C. Hardcastle, played by Brian Keith, was a Los Angeles Superior Court judge who earned his nickname Hardcase by being a by-the-book, hard-nosed, totally inflexible lawman who would just as likely reprimand a cop for failing to correctly read the Miranda rights as he would punish a criminal. Skid Mark McCormick, played by Daniel Hugh Kelly, is an ex-race car driver turned repo man who has been busted by Hardcastle on more than one occasion. With Hardcastle's impending retirement, McCormack's recent arrest sees him hope against hope that he doesn't find himself in Hardcastle's courtroom. But McCormack is out of luck. 
All of Cannell's shows tended to have rousing earworms as theme tunes, normally by Mike Post and Pete Carpenter. The theme to Hardcastle and McCormick, Drive, was by Post, Stephen Geyer and sung by David Morgan, and it's easily one of their best collaborations. driving while you're listening to this you've probably just got a speeding ticket i'm sorry the pilot to hardcastle and mccormick is one of the better ones largely due to the undeniable chemistry between kelly and keith both actors own the screen and their characters from the get-go with fireworks exploding whenever they're in conflict which was a lot Hardcastle takes an interest in McCormick when he learns McCormick was stealing a one-of-a-kind race car, the Coyote X, for the designer's daughter, played by Faye Grant, who believes her father, the designer of the car, was killed by his business partner. I mean, if you're watching this, of course he was. The business partner is played by John Saxon. John Saxon always kills people. He's the bad guy. Hardcastle has a little side project, though. For his retirement, he wants to pin down over 200 of the guilty cases that walked out of his courtroom on technicalities. And McCormick's skills behind the wheel may come in useful. Hardcastle takes McCormick under his wing and gets McCormick to agree to help him. And in return, the first case they will bring in is Saxon. Sure, it's a premise Cannell had mined before in his failed prior series, the aforementioned 10-speed and brown shoe, also created by Patrick Hasbert and Cannell. It's also a partnership he's mined before. The conservative, by-the-book, crusty older partner, teamed with the more liberal-minded, less-set-in-his-ways younger man, had already worked to great effect in The Greatest American Hero, but it's taken to the next level here. Hardcastle appreciated McCormick's sense of justice, in his own way, McCormick was being a Robin Hood-type character, even if he did break the law. McCormick thinks the law sometimes gets in the way of doing what's right. The duo butt heads almost immediately, but the relationship is almost warm and cuddly. Yes, they fight, but it's a fight that comes from two men who are a lot alike, although McCormick would never admit it. The pilot is well shot by Roger Young and features some exceptional stunt driving, including a number of impressive jumps and chases. 
The Coyote X, originally a disguised Manta montage, is one of the best cars to ever appear on TV. A sleek red sports car with cool lines and a killer appearance. The car handles the swerves, handbrake turns and jumps as adroitly as anything seen on Knight Rider. Sadly, Keith, not a small man, had trouble getting in and out of the original Coyote X, and it was altered for the second season. The redesign, based upon a DeLorean DMC-12, is notably clunkier and less eye-catching. Hardcastle and McCormick mostly coasts by on the charm of its lead actors, and the writers would lean into this more as the series rode on. By the third season, the basic premise of the show was mostly forgotten, the series instead relying heavily on the comedic chops of the leads and instead focusing on more character-based plot lines. The series ran for a moderately successful three seasons, although its greatest achievement was creating a lifelong friendship between Keith and Kelly. Brian Keith died of an apparent suicide in 1997, but Kelly was at the unveiling of Keith's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2008. Cannell parlayed this winning streak into the 1984 TV season. With both the A-Team and Hardcastle and McCormick still on the air, Cannell sold two further series, Riptide and Hunter. Both shows lent a little too much into the A-Team formula of high-octane action, oddball characters and somewhat predictable, yes, formulaic plots. Riptide, created by Cannell and Frank Lupo, also borrowed heavily from Magnum P.I., with the idea presumably being if one hunky P.I. was attracting boffo ratings, then two would double your Nielsen's. Perry King and Joe Penny would be the two hunky P.I.'s, Cody Allen and Nick Ryder. Having resigned from their position as military police, presumably due to their inability to capture the A-team, the duo opened a private investigator business on Pier 56 in L.A., because that's what you did on telly in the 80s. Realising that being pretty doesn't necessarily make you a good investigator, they team up with computer nerd Muddy Bozinski, played by Tom Bray. Like Magnum, Cody and Nick had both served in Nome, and like TC, Nick would run a tourist tour of the area in his beaten-up old helicopter, an H-34 Sikorsky. Whilst watching this, my daughter referred to it as Two Magnums and a Q, which is a better title than Riptide, which makes it sound like a show about surfers. The pilot for Riptide is highly derivative of other shows on the air at the time, right down to Cody and Nick having an antagonistic police chief always on their case, somewhat similar to Colonel Decker in the A-Team. The similarities are heightened by the police chief being played by Jack Gink, who took over from Lance Legar as the chief pain in the A-Team's arse. That being said, Riptide's pilot is not unenjoyable. King and Penny work off each other very well, bouncing around Cannell and Lupo's smart-ass dialogue with a certain amount of charm. Bray fits in well and makes what could have been a horrendous cliché of a character into a likeable member of the team. It speaks to Nick and Cody as men that they took Boz under their wing in the army rather than bully or treat him as a lesser, and Boz rewards them by being the one that figures out the case, gets the girl and inadvertently, I'm sure, makes Cody and Nick look rather dumb in the process. His wooing of the client comes through honesty, integrity and generosity and makes for a nice contrast to Nick and Cody's macho posturing. Granted, the macho posturing comes with a whiff of homoeroticism, with the guys trying far too hard to prove their womanizer's ways, and there's a ridiculous scene where Nick and Cody embark upon a car chase in nothing but their underpants. 
The scene was scored with what would become another banger of a theme tune from Mike Post and Pete Carpenter, a Beach Boys-infused surfer piece. Again, come on, admit it, you're tapping your feet. Mike Post and Pete Carpenter could do no wrong in the 80s, I'm telling you now. Post and Carpenter used to write my favourite songs. To quote, they might be giants. Or misquote, they might be giants. Riptide benefited most from not taking itself too seriously, and the magnificent stunt work canal shows were famous for. However, in its third season, the series found itself up against some stiff competition. Moonlighting. As you may imagine... Riptide's third season was its last. However, they didn't go out without a fight. The penultimate episode of the series, If You Can't Beat Em, Join Em, written by Babs Grey-Hosky and Tom Blumquist, and directed by Tony Modante, sees the guys hired by a TV producer to allow two actors to shadow them before they embark upon their new show, a private detective series. The series, about a bickering purr of mismatched PIs, a man and a woman, who argue to hide the fact that they just want to sleep with each other, is a clear spoof of moonlighting, right down to the on-the-nose impersonations of Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis by actors Annette McCarthy and Richard Green, the latter of which was a perma-smirk. The script is also a magnificent spoof of moonlighting, McCarthy is always filmed in overdone soft focus, wears trainers with a designer suit and reveals plenty of thigh. Green perfectly spoofs Willis's speech patterns, receding her line in De Bees B dialogue. All credit to the series regulars as well, willing to send up not only themselves, but the genre of TV they work in, with inside gags about the TV industry generally and the convoluted nature of detective TV show plots in particular. Perry King has a wonderful comedic beat. After being asked why TV audiences would want to watch a show about three struggling detectives in scruffy clothes when they can watch beautiful people in designer suits, King looks directly into camera with a harsh but fur look on his face. Boz even mocks a script for the new show called Dead Men Don't Floss, a script they had made a few weeks earlier as an episode of Riptide. The cast all seems to be having a ball, sending themselves and the show up wonderfully, with Perry King demonstrating his propensity for comedy. We'll even forgive the producers for using this great setup as a cover for a clip show. Riptide did fine, but the bigger hit was Hunter. It too featured a memorable theme tune by Mike Post 
and Pete Carpenter. Of course, he had a catchphrase. Everybody had a catchphrase. Hunter was created by the A-Team duo of Cannell and Frank Lupo and centred around Rick Hunter, a thinly veiled Dirty Harry knockoff played by former American footballer Fred Dreyer. Hunter is the son of a mobster, the white sheep of the family, and he's a pitch-perfect 80s cop cliché, as perfectly sent up in Alan Spencer's late 80s sitcom Sledgehammer. We know Hunter is a maverick because he's always on suspension for shooting people. We know he's pissed off his captain, played by Michael Kavanagh, because he's given a beaten-up car to drive around in. And we know he's on the outs as dispatch has been told to avoid giving him notifications about crimes in the vicinity. No one wants to work with him, as all his partners are either in hospital, pensioned off, or sucking dirt. No other show in the Canal catalogue shows the changing times more than Hunter. The plot of the pilot concerns a killer who only murders blondes from country and western bars. But because everyone else on the force is stupid, only Hunter has made the connection that this is a repeat killer. Hunter's captain doesn't want to know. And he and Hunter don't see eye to eye, mainly because Dreyer was six foot six. Hunter is balking at many of the reforms Kavanagh is instituting. The captain wants clearly read out Miranda rights. He wants the police to announce themselves and not just fire blindly. And he wants them to undergo regular mental health examinations. Hunter scoffs at the idea the police should announce themselves, mocks that they shouldn't open fire indiscriminately, and grimaces at the idea that a member of the police force may need some mental health help after working an incredibly stressful job. And of course, Hunter is portrayed as being totally correct. The captain is a weaselly, cowardly follower of the rules and therefore not to be trusted. His most valued officer is 80s TV regular James Whitmore Jr. as Bernie Terwilliger, a buttoned-up brown noser who is earmarked as Hunter's new partner to keep him in line. Hunter does not like that, no sirree Bob, and as such takes it upon himself to nab a partner, Sergeant D.D. McCall, played by Stephanie Kramer. She's as bad as Hunter, taking the law into her own hands and generally being as big a pain in the arse as he is, but she at least plays the game a little bit more. McCall, also known as the Brass Cupcake, is given a little more motivation than Hunter in her backstory. Her husband, also a cop, was killed in the line of duty, and it's suggested that King Haynes, who McCall is investigating here, had a hand in it. It's a good attempt at making her a co-lead, and as important as Hunter. That won't last. Hunter and McCall agree to pretend to be partners to keep the captain off their backs. That won't last either. Hunter's attitude to women is a little odd. 
We're supposed to believe he's not a chauvinist because he doesn't hit on McCall, whereas apparently every other cop in the station has. But he also uses that she's a woman with women's problems as an excuse to explain why she's not around. He also expresses amazement that she can shoot as well as he can because woman. But he spent 20 minutes prior to this realisation pointing out how alike they are. If McCall is as badass as her rep suggests, surely Hunter would know how good a shot she was. Despite the promise, McCall ends up helping Hunter in his case. It will come as no surprise to you that the big-name guest star, Brian DeHennehy as mental health Dr. Bolan, is the bad guy. It will also come as no surprise that this heavily implies that Dolan's mental health isn't all that it's cracked up to be. So the whole idea of mental health is thrown into question. Now, one could argue that portrayals such as this is why men's mental health became such a problem when Hunter is sat there smirking at the idea that people with stressful jobs snap and become killers. But I'm not sure we should ascribe such lofty ideas to Hunter. This is no Judge Dredd parody of a fascist police force. It's an 80s action show. No more, no less. Hell, Judge Hardcastle would have hauled Hunter into his courtroom and busted his ass for not following the law. Taking on its own merits, the pilot is enjoyable tosh. Daft and laughable nowadays, yes, but fun for all that. A better twist would have been that Hunter turned out to be the bad guy. His mobster family and his too obvious bravado masking a deeply troubled man. But that wasn't going to happen at this show. It's about as well shot as any other show of this era. The action is well mounted, but there are copious amounts of looped dialogue to explain the extremely thin plot and very little flourish or innovation. Dreyer is entertaining enough, even if his Clint Eastwood shtick was pretty thin pretty quickly. He's watchable and dryly funny when he needs to be, but he's not required to display a lot of range. Kramer has a bit more to work with, portraying the just-as-tough-as-any-man cliché with charm and poise. It's only when the two of them start bouncing off each other, trading Lupo's characteristic hard-boiled dialogue with aplomb, that the show really emerges as anything other than just another maverick cop show. Hunter was not successful in its inaugural season, but Cannell traded on his goodwill with the network and gained a renewal. Cannell brought in his friend and mentor Roy Huggins from Rockford Files to run the show from season two, and a better time slot saw the ratings rise. Huggins softened Hunter's character, dropping the mobster family stuff, and played up McCall and Hunter's adversarial and then friendly relationship, resisting the temptation to make them a couple, a move that worked in the show's favour. He toned down the action and car chases, making the show a more grounded police procedural, and the seasons he ran, two through four, are generally regarded to be the best. Stephanie Kramer called it a day after six seasons. She's been diplomatic as to why, but one can't help but think, based upon the odd interview I've read here and there, that Dreyer's ego may have had something to do with it. Hunter ended up being one of Cannell's biggest successes, not only running for seven seasons initially, but a number of reunion movies followed. The Return of Hunter in 1995, Hunter Return to Justice in 2002, and the success of these telefilms, which saw Kramer return, earned the show another telefilm, Hunter Back in Force in 2003. Against all odds, this yielded a new series pickup. 
A new season of Hunter began airing in late 2003, but was cancelled after three episodes of the five filmed would err. The world had moved on by 2003, and Hunter's brand of justice would not return for a fourth time. Next up was a show I had never seen before discovering it on archive.org. Wise Guy, which debuted in 1987, also created by Lupo and Cannell. Wise Guy is unlike anything else in the Cannell canon, being more adult and smarter than pretty much anything else he created. The Wise Guy of the title is Vinnie Terranova, played by Ken Wall, and as usual, featured a Mike Post theme. <laughs> The 90-minute pilot to Wise Guy is unusual for a Cannell show, as it's very light on the action he was famous for, focusing more on the character drama and the premise. Granted, it does end with a helicopter shootout, but hey, you've got to give the network what they want, right? As the pilot opens, Terranova has served an 18-month prison sentence, something we immediately find out is bogus, because Terranova is a cop. His handler, Frank McPike, played by the always excellent Jonathan Banks, has led him rot in jail to protect his cover. Cheers, Frank. Terranova is an FBI agent who goes deep undercover with mob bosses to expose them from within. But needless to say, after spending 18 months in jail, Terranova's relationship with McPike is ever so slightly fractious. However, Terranova takes a new assignment. Get close to Sonny Steelgrave, played by Ray Sharkey Jr., a noted drug lord and enforcer. Unlike any of the other shows of the time, Wise Guy was heavily serialised, with Terranova's assignments playing out over many episodes. This Sonny Steelgrave storyline plays out over the first ten episodes of season one, with episodes focusing around the toll Vinny's double life plays on him, the difficulties in maintaining his cover, and how he deals with growing to quite like the man he's been assigned to take down. Wall starts out as a lump of beef, but over the next few episodes grows immeasurably as an actor, portraying a deeply conflicted and troubled man, often concerned with who he is becoming and what this job is doing to him. His relationship with his family is fascinating. His priest brother knows of Vinny's double life, but this is a truth he can never tell his mother, who believes her son is a criminal. 
Things come to a head with this storyline when Vinny's mum is mugged and may not survive, leading Vinny to tell her the truth, disobeying Frank's direct orders. It's one of the best scenes in the show when Sonny helps pay Vinny's mum's hospital bills, whilst Frank is telling him she may have to die, thinking her son a criminal. This character-based drama and conflict and dichotomy is at the heart of Wise Guy, the one show here I carried on watching for more than one or two episodes. It's one of Cannell's more mature pieces. The expanded runtime of the stories allowing for a deeper exploration of the themes. It has its problems. It's a crime drama whereby the hardened New Jersey gangsters never swore. And obviously the sex and violence is significantly toned down in comparison to The Shield or The Sopranos. Both shows that dealt with similar subject matter. Surprisingly, though, it's a really heartfelt show. All the characters are well-drawn, well-acted and well-developed. Jonathan Banks would obviously go onward and upward, best known nowadays as Mike in Breaking Bad. But the show also had a number of before-they-were-famous guest stars. Kevin Spacey starred in the second season's Mel Profit arc, and other bad guys included Stanley Tucci, Tim Curry and Robert Davey. Ken Wall left the show after season three, following a dispute over the direction of season four. Wise Guy was never a ratings darling, and Wall felt they were selling out the show for more commercial viability. That the show was cancelled midway through season four, with three episodes left on Erd, kind of proved Wall right. Cannell never held it against him, though, and when the opportunity came to make a reunion movie in 1996, Cannell went back to Wall to reprise his role alongside Banks and other series regular Highlanders Jim Burns. In the interim, though, Wall had suffered a serious accident, breaking his neck, and although he made a recovery that allowed him to walk again, he was in constant pain. The strain of production demonstrated to Wall that he just couldn't do this anymore, and the Wise Guy movie was his last acting performance. By 1990, the winds of TV were changing, and the networks were no longer in the market for the brand of high-octane action Cannell was peddling. But Canny Cannell saw that syndication was where the literal action was. Whilst network TV was leaning more towards teen telly and the supernatural, sometimes both at the same time, Hello Charmed and Buffy, Syndication saw a market that hadn't been catered for. Star Trek, The Next Generation, Baywatch and Resurrections for Mission Impossible and Kung Fu drew reasonable audiences. Other shows with successful brand names behind them like War of the Worlds and Highlander and low-budget horror like Friday the 13th and Freddy's Nightmares based on the Nightmare on Elm Street series also found favour. New shows such as Babylon 5, Xena, Hercules and Forever Night proved that they could also find an audience. Technically, Cannell's first syndicated show started, like Baywatch, on a network. Silk Stockings was a crime noir detective show centred around two cops who worked crimes of passion or high-class sex crimes, the Silk Stockings of the title, in and around Florida. Mitzi Capture and Rob Estes star as the detectives Rita Lee Lance and Christopher Lorenzo, both sexy and glamorous and both infatuated with each other. Cannell gets the moonlighting vibe out of the way instantly. These two are hot for each other. These two know they are hot for each other and these two both know they'll end up in bed together, but not whilst they are partners. This is a clever bit of writing from Cannell as it removes the will-they-won't-they angle. 
They will, just not yet. Cannell also plays with the form somewhat. We're used to cops with a past, the cop with a problem, and the hard-boiled narration. And we'd expect all that from Estes' character. Instead, Cannell swerves and gives all that baggage to Capture's character, Lance. She has a brain tumour that could pop at any moment. She could get it operated on, but there's 50-50 odds it would kill her or leave her severely mentally impaired. There's also a 50% chance that it'll never come to anything, so instead she simply chooses to live her life. The only people who know about it are her boyfriend, who happens to be the doctor who diagnosed her, serious breach of ethics if you ask me, and her partner, Lorenzo. The pilot episode seems to want to be steamier than it's allowed to be, and maybe when it moved to syndication it got a little bit sexier. But the basic plot sees Lance and Lorenzo investigate the death of the wife of a famous golfer. The pilot features a guest appearance by Anne Turkle, best known to me as the woman who kept trying to steal Kit in Knight Rider. This pilot definitely shows the transition from the 80s to the 90s in its opening titles. Gone are fast cuts, car chases and guns, shows like Hunter and Riptide, and in are smooth jazz, softcore porn, topless men and lingerie-clad women. Again, Mike Post did the theme. Stockings ended up being Cannell's longest-running show, clocking up eight seasons and featuring three changes in lead actors after Capture and Esdes decided to leave in the middle of season five. Trivia fans may be interested to know that Mitzi Capture was originally cast as Jennifer Walters in the Bridget Nielsen She-Hulk series. Cannell's other syndicated offering, and the one made directly for that market, was Renegade. It will come as no surprise to you to learn that the theme was, once again, by Mike Post. Only this time, he wasn't the first choice. The producers wanted Bon Jovi's Dead or Alive to be the theme, and there are rumours that the original pilot episode was constructed with this as its opening montage. But then they decided they couldn't afford it. This was a syndicated show, after all, and they called in Mike Post to do a reasonable approximation thereof. 
He was a cop and good at his job, but he committed the ultimate sin and testified against other cops gone bad. Cops that tried to kill him, but got the woman he loved instead. Framed for murder, now he prowls the badlands, an outlaw hunting outlaws, a bounty hunter, a renegade. Male catalogue model Lorenzo Lamas, all wife-beater vests, leather jackets and ridiculously blow-dried hair, stars as Reno Reigns, a cop and a good one. But as the opening titles tell us, one who testified against other cops and was punished for it. Reigns' girlfriend is put in hospital and he's on the run, trying to prove his innocence, all the while trying to stay one step ahead of the true criminal, Police Chief Donald Dutch Dixon, played by Cannell himself. If this all sounds cliched and trite, well, that's because it's cliched and trite. The acting is ropey as hell, particularly from Rain's girlfriend, Deprice Brescia, who also has the worst dialogue in the pilot. I wish I could cry for you. A line that elicited groans from me and hysterical laughter from my wife. The best character in it, and arguably the best actor, is Branscombe Richmond as Native American bounty hunter Bobby Sixkiller. Richmond had done the rounds of US 70s and 80s TV, paying his dues in the likes of The A-Team, Hunter, Erwolf, The Six Million Dollar Man, Charlie's Angels and Magnum P.I. before landing this gig, and he's clearly loving it. Sixkiller is interesting because he's not a bad guy or a good guy. Just a guy doing a job and he wants to be paid for it. Originally hired by Dutch to find Reigns, Sixkiller is in fact saved by Reigns and realises he's batting for the wrong team. By the end of the pilot, Sixkiller is working with Reigns as bounty hunters. Sixkiller will toss work towards Reigns in exchange for, you know, a 10% cut of the salary. Reigns tosses half of that salary back to Sixkiller in exchange for Sixkiller giving any information he finds out to the one good cop Reigns can trust as to who set him up and why. The pilot is cliché central. Biker gangs, corrupt cops, the lead on the run for a crime he didn't commit, all tried and true. Lamas, who gained fame in the soap Falcon Crest, was a motorcycle and martial arts enthusiast, and therefore fits the main requirements of the role. Smolder, ride a bike, and look cool whilst hitting people. There's not a lot to Renegade. 
Carroll ruled over TV for a long time, and if some of his work is forgettable and formulaic, other series are groundbreaking in their own way. Cannell wasn't making art or cinematic TV. He was making shows real people could enjoy after a hard day at work. Criticism can be levelled at all the shows I watched for this. But you know what? Every single one of them was at the very least enjoyable. Some were daft, like Renegade. Others questionable, like Hunter. Others still ushered in the winds of change, like Wise Guy. But they all entertained. And that's all Cannon set out to do. Entertain. He did it magnificently well. I've been podcasting about comics for well over a decade, man and boy, and no company has ever sent me a preview or advanced copy of anything. Until now. Michael Bailey let me know that Hatchet publishing writer Matthew K. Manning had put out on Twitter that if anyone wanted an advanced copy of the new Spider-Man hardcover, a history and celebration of the web-slinger decade by decade, for review purposes, to let him know. I threw my hat into the ring. After all, what was there to lose? To my surprise and delight, Matthew picked me to receive a copy. It duly arrived, and it's a pretty neat book. Credited to Matthew, Peter David and Robert Greenberger, it's a smaller hardcover than the previous volumes in this series. There have been detailed looks at the character through the decades a few times before. Books like Spider-Man the Icon and the Spider-Man Vault. We'll come back to that one later. But they were larger and slightly unwieldy. A history and celebration of the web-slinger decade by decade is smaller, more compact. I'm always interested in the art direction of books like this and what decision goes into choosing cover art and such. The front cover is a shot of Spider-Man by John Buscema and, I think, Jim Mooney, which is fascinating. Buscema is a great artist, but his contribution to Spider-Man is very minimal. As you may expect from a book entitled Decade by Decade, the chapters are split along those lines, and after an introduction by Peter David, the opening focuses on Spider-Man's creation and early days. David's introduction and many of the early chapters are pulled from the Spider-Man Vault, told you I'd come back to it, from 2008, but it still features some interesting tidbits about the 2002 film and the power of Spider-Man's origins. Anyone who's listened to my episodes about the Stan Lee-Steve Ditko run will know how strong a story I think Amazing Fantasy XV is. The prose is short and snappy, appealing, I think, to people who may have an interest in the character and his comics history, but may have come at him from the films. Controversy is skipped over, so there's no salacious gossip about why Steve Ditko left, although it's interesting to read the contradictory opinions on just who was responsible for the Peter Murray Jane wedding. The early chapters also feature some great looks at the original art and Marvel's willingness to tackle the social issues of the day. In contrast, Marvel's often irreverent sense of humour is also ably represented. Were they the same, the images used are of a higher quality than in The Vault, although you do lose the tactile experience of being able to remove the replica Spider-Man mask and put it on. Not that I did that. No, I'm an adult. 
Obviously, more has happened in Spider-Man's publication history since the vault saw print, and the history and celebration of the web-slinger decade by decade expands upon the previous volume by nearly two decades. New information about the extra comics, merchandising, and specifically Spider-Man's introduction in the MCU are given the due, with some information I was not aware of, such as Mark Wade being the original writer for Friendly Neighbourhood Spider-Man. The biggest change in the past two decades has been the proliferation of additional Spider-Man adjacent characters. Some, like Spider-Woman or Madam Web, had been around for a while, but have developed over time. Others, like Spider-Girl or Spider-Gwen, are from alternative realities. Others still, like Silk or the Miles Morales version of Spider-Man, are newer characters, all of whom add to the rich tapestry of Spider-Man's publishing history. Overall, a history and celebration of the web-slinger decade by decade is a worthy purchase, should you have a younger reader interested in the character and his comics. It distills the character down to its major components, and if it also reveals just how convoluted the comics have become, well, that's no fault of the book itself, merely a reflection of the comics industry. It's well laid out, features nice images, and the text is nicely snarky when needed, reflecting Marvel's irreverence, and respectful when necessary. Overall, its smaller size and easier readability is a nice trade-off for the extras featured in the vault. A big thanks to Matthew K. Manning for sending me an advanced copy of this book. Damien, Damien. What? You know in the bedroom, yeah. there's thousands of boxes of comics. Thousands of boxes of comics. I'll have you know, I've only got 47 boxes of comics. 47? 47, that's barely any. That's 47 is less than one box of comics for every year I've been alive. Don't you think that is dangerous? We've got so many boxes piled up by the bed. I think it's highly unlikely they would fall though. I've stacked them quite well. What would you think if I told you that maybe you should get rid of some? What? It's only a suggestion. How dare you? I love those comics. Do you love all of those comics? I love almost all of those comics. But should you love these comics? I love them all. I will not part with any of them. How very dare you. Prove it. Well, I suppose we could start working our way through my collection reading them together and deciding whether or not I should love this comic. Sounds like a podcast. Well, we are two middle-aged men. We probably should start a podcast at some point. You're right, everybody else has got a podcast. So listen to Should I Love This Comic with me, Damien Drewaywhiter. And me, Irigail Drewaywhiter. Where we will go through comics and tell you Should I I Love This this comic? Comic? Go to shouldilovethis.blogspot.com where you can find all our latest episodes. You can also see a gallery of images that we talk about in the episode. Should I love this comic? I think so. What do you think? Okay, okay. Shall we have a look at our emails? Magnum PI is from Rob McCarthy. Number one, yes, Magnum was a cut above most crime shows and really, really better than private investigator shows. Think about it. Cops get the cases they get. PIs are much harder to write because why not just follow unfaithful husbands rather than shoot ninjas? Although it was interesting to learn that the original setting was California. 
yeah, the, I think that's why Magnum scores as well, because a lot of the times it does stories that don't have cases. It does pure character pieces. Episodes that don't have a case of the week or anything like that. It, that that's where Magnum scored in its characterization and its treatment of the lead characters. Matt Prather has emailed in. Hey, Andrew. Hello, Matt. How are you? Ross Andrew is an underrated Spider-Man artist, in my opinion. Mine too. It is nice to see his work getting some spotlight. Seemingly, the most covered of his work is the Spider-Man crossover with Superman. And that always gets the Neil Adams footnote. Yeah, but the layouts are, are all Andrew, aren't they? And they're all damn cool. Magnum P.I. was a fun show. And I enjoyed your look at it. I did always wonder, if TC fought someone, he won hands down. If Magnum fought someone, he always barely got the upper hand. But when TC fought Magnum, Magnum won. Is TC just holding back with Magnum? I think so, yes. I think whenever TC and Magnum got into any kind of brawl, I don't think they ever really meant it. It was kind of like brothers having an argument. Because in all honesty, I don't think Magnum could take TC. I don't think he could. It always tickles me somewhat when a fancy, super notable sports car tails inconspicuously someone in traffic. Yeah, well, they were all guilty of that in the 80s, weren't they? Magnum, Hardcastle and McCormick, Knight Rider, the A-Team. The thing about the A-Team was especially dumb in that B.A. drove that really rather recognisable van and Hannibal held down a regular job and yet the MP still couldn't catch them. How stupid were they? Anyway, super fun show and well worth a revisit. What, mine or Magnum P.I.? I'm choosing to go with mine. That, that's what I'm going for. Thanks, Matt Prather. No, thank you for emailing in. It is always appreciated. Um, it's all going to be okay, he said through gritted teeth, because we've got a new Prime Minister. Let's see how this one works out, should we? None of the others have lasted a term. Let's see if that changes. Uh, hey kids comics at virginmedia.com is where you can email me if you have anything to say about the work of Stephen J. Cannell. I'd love to hear from you. Take care, and I'll see you all real soon.